Uh, Father, inspire us out of your word tonight. Father, give us something from Daniel's life that reminds us that uh, you work in everyone's life. Uh, Don't let this become a coloring book story, Father. Don't let it be something that uh, feels so remote and distant from our everyday experience that we would forget how real you are or how real your power is in the life of everyone who follows you faithfully. And uh, let us see that again in the the text tonight, Father, so that uh, you can do them. Amazing things in our life as you did in Daniel's life. Um, Daniel was a servant, Father. He was a man who committed himself to your word and to a strong testimony. And that's a, uh, Father, those are ingredients you can do a lot with. And, and I pray, Lord, that we are thinking about our own life in the way that uh, we should, concerning ourselves with these same practices, disciplines, commitments, so that if we may find ourselves in turmoil and in trial one day, or that you may choose to use us in some way to, to magnify your glory, that we'd be equal to that task and that opportunity. We'd be ready for it. And the stories that we're learning of Daniel's life, Father, would help inspire us to serve you in that way. We pray, Lord, for that uh, insight tonight as we study in your word. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start working our way now out of the chiasm that we've been working through over the last several weeks. We've reached the point on the chiasm that is B prime. Now, again, if any of this is new to you because you haven't been here, you can always go back and look at the notes from prior weeks and catch up. But we are in a chiasm from chapters 2 through 7 in the book of Daniel. The message of these chapters progresses through a series of thoughts. We've now progressed through chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. We've covered those points. 2, 3, and 4 took us down into the chiasm. 5 begins the time coming back up. And now 6, we're definitely on our way out of the chiasm. So as you look at the chiasm, these chapters parallel one another. So 2 parallels 7, 3 parallels 6, 4 parallels 5. So we're at 6. So we should look back for a moment on chapter 3 and on the events of chapter 3 to gain an understanding of where we're going again now in chapter 6. Chapter 3 saw Daniel's three friends suffering persecution at the hands of the king of Babylon because of their faithfulness to the Lord God. And now that we're on the flip side of the chiasm, we're going to find a similar story of persecution and rescue. This is the story of God delivering Daniel from Gentile persecution. And the message in both these chapters is largely the same, as the chiasm would suggest. That is, those in Israel who remain faithful to the Lord will continue to receive his protection even as they live in captivity. The God of Israel is still at work, preserving a remnant among the exiles. In chapter 6, the antagonists and the protagonists change from where they were in chapter 3. Instead of the king of Babylon, now we're going to have the king of the Medes, now that the Medes and Persians have conquered Babylon. And instead of Daniel's three friends, now it's Daniel himself, who is the victim suffering. But the outcome ultimately is the same. That is, Israel is in captivity by God's decree, but the nation is not forgotten by the Lord. He continues to protect them against the very enemies that he's permitted to come against them and conquer them. So we pick up tonight, actually at the very end of chapter 5, because I left the final verse of chapter 5 for tonight, where we learn that there is a new sheriff in town. Verse 31 of chapter 5, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Now that final verse of chapter 5 is our bridge into chapter 6, obviously. And this verse is, in fact, the very first verse of chapter 6 in a Hebrew Bible. If you go to a Hebrew Bible, that's where they start chapter 6, is at chapter 531. Because it's clearly setting up what comes next. 
Darius the Mede now ruling all that Babylon previously owned. In fact, the Medo-Persian Empire uh, took all of what Babylon had and added to it from what they already possessed. And so you end up now with the largest kingdom the world's ever seen to that date. The Lord had told Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, back in Daniel chapter 2, through the statue dream, that his nation's time on the top of the heap would not last forever. There would eventually come a day when God would appoint some other nation to roll into town and take over what they held. And if you remember, that second kingdom in the statue was represented by breast and arms in the statue of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. Now we are 66 years later, following that day of the dream, of when Nebuchadnezzar got that dream. And we've moved already, after just 66 years, into the second stage on that four-part statue that depicts the age of the Gentiles. Babylon is no more. Belshazzar is dead. And Darius is ruling. And the new ruler inherits the service of all of Babylon's previous court, including Daniel. You know how it is when your company's taken over by another company? They just give you a new ID badge. That's what happened to Daniel. He showed up one day and he traded in his Babylon badge for a Medo-Persian badge. But fortunately, all the gates still worked. He could swipe. He could get to work on that day. Now, the exact identity of Darius the Mede, the man you see introduced here, has long been a source of controversy in Daniel's book and, and still is today among scholars. People get PhDs just on this topic. So history records that the first ruler of the new Medo-Persian Empire, the one that defeated Babylon, was not a Mede, but a Persian, specifically Cyrus the Persian. He was the king who defeated the Babylonians. That's a well-documented fact in history. Even scripture itself confirms that Cyrus was ruling at the time that the Medo-Persian Empire took over from Babylon. Isaiah says, hundreds of years before it ever happened, Isaiah said that it would be Cyrus who would conquer and lead Israel out of captivity and back to their land. Ezra and Second Chronicles, historically looking back on this moment, confirm that Cyrus was king of Persia. And in roughly a year's time from now, from chapter 6, Cyrus is going to be the one who issues the order that allows the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And even Daniel himself confirms that Cyrus is the one who leads Persia. He says it later in this very chapter. So there's plenty of confirmation that Cyrus is the king of Persia. On the other hand, Daniel says at the very end, look at the very end of chapter 6, the very final verse. Daniel says he serves both King Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. And the comment at the end of the chapter then suggests strongly that Darius and Cyrus were different men. Though there is one theory that really they're one and the same man, that they just went by two different names. That in other words, Darius is more of a title, like Caesar or Pharaoh. But the man's actual name was Cyrus. The fact that he's called Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, though, really makes it hard to see them as one and the same. It could be that Darius ruled at about the same time as Cyrus. That is, that Darius was of the Medes and Cyrus was of the Persians and somehow they were holding co-regent, co-authority for some period of time. Remember, Daniel was in his 80s when Babylon fell and it says here he served both kings. Well, you can't imagine Daniel lived very long following this changeover in the kingdom. And so it seems unlikely that he lived long enough to serve one monarch and then only to see that monarch die and another monarch rise up after him and Daniel yet still being alive at that point. It's not impossible, but more likely these men were contemporaries. In other books of scripture, we hear of other kings of the Medo-Persian Empire named Darius, Darius I, Darius II. 
But as you look at where those mentions happen in Scripture, it becomes clear that those Dariuses ruled long after Cyrus. They were Cyrus's successor, not predecessor. So they can't be the same Darius as mentioned here in chapter 6. Perhaps they divided up the kingdom. They were, after all, two nations that had come together to defeat Babylon. So you have the Medes and the Persians. Maybe they retained some kind of independence for a time, one ruling over some part of the kingdom and one ruling over other. Then perhaps after Darius died, Cyrus then consolidated his rule. That's one theory. Perhaps Darius was the title of a lesser ruler over just Babylon or some region. And he ruled under Cyrus's authority, much as we saw last chapter where Belshazzar ruled under Nebuchadnezzar. But none of these are conclusive. Daniel's book appears to be the only historical record we have of a man named Darius the Mede ruling at the time that Medo-Persia took over the Empire of Babylon. And obviously for that reason, those who doubt the authenticity of Scripture or Daniel's book particularly will cite this as a way of discrediting the book. When we get to heaven, we'll find out all about this other guy, Darius, that no one else thought to write about. And it's under the rule of Darius that Daniel gains attention again, probably for the first time in a while. Daniel 6.1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So this chapter is one that chronicles how the new king is manipulated into persecuting his favorite commissioner, Daniel, and yet in the end, Daniel is protected and his enemies vanquished by the Lord. Though this chapter is part of a chiasm from chapters 2 through 7, this chapter in itself is a little mini-chiasm within the chapter. It begins with Daniel's success in serving the king. It ends with the king praising Daniel's success. Uh, In the middle, you're going to find Daniel's enemies conspiring against him and later dying in his place. And then at the midpoint of the chiasm, you find Darius hoping for Daniel's deliverance, but then witnessing that deliverance. So it has a very nice chiastic structure within it. The story opens with Daniel's new appointment, now as a commissioner of one-third of this new kingdom. So whatever role Daniel played in the years of Babylon's decline after Nebuchadnezzar, and I proposed last week that he may have been working in obscurity for long periods of time there toward the last part of his life, for it seems as though Belshazzar could barely remember him when he called him forth. Now Daniel's back on top. Darius divides his kingdom, we're told, into 120 lesser provinces or something of that sort to administer his business and he puts men over each of those their role was probably focused largely on tax collection and i say that because of what he does next he has these 120 divided into three groups of 40 and over each of the 40 he appoints a commissioner to ensure it says that he will not suffer loss. That would tell you that he doesn't have a tremendous amount of confidence in the low-level administrators who are going to find their ways out into the field. They may very well be susceptible to corruption and fraud, embezzlement and the like. So he puts someone above them in the form of a commissioner 
who he trusts. And that's implicit here, right? If you're worried about loss and so you appoint someone to manage to that end, you're implying that you're appointing someone you trust. Because otherwise, why would you think they could avoid your loss otherwise? Daniel being one of those three. Soon enough, Daniel begins to distinguish himself yet again before a new king. The details of his good work are not provided here, but I think you can imagine it pretty easily, can't you? I mean, we know Daniel is probably scrupulous in everything he does. He roots out fraud, I would assume. He exposes corruption, has it done away with. That's his role, making sure those in the 120, of which he has 40 of those, that they would be doing their job properly. I suspect he's probably pretty wise at this point in his life in judgment, and certainly he's incorruptible. No one's going to bribe him. No one's going to convince him to do the wrong thing. Where others might have taken bribes or looked the other way, Daniel serves the king faithfully. All the things you might expect of Daniel. When we hear that he has distinguished himself among the other commissioners, we know the king is looking at Daniel's behavior, and he's noticing a distinction between what Daniel does and what his other two commissioners do, and maybe even beyond that, what happens at the lower level, at the 120. The result is, he sees Daniel to be exceptional. But by the same token, you might assume then, that he understands that Daniel's peers are not so exceptional, that they have weaknesses, and that he's worried about all of them. And so we hear that the king is considering putting Daniel over the whole lot because he needs that kind of trustworthiness among those in authority. Daniel's like the straight-A student who blows the curve on the final exam, you know? That would explain the motivation for why these men start to conspire against Daniel. Probably in jealousy, maybe even under concern that they will lose their position or be exposed before the king for having done dishonest things. Whatever the case may be, they're jealous over Daniel's success. They're angry at being convicted in comparison to Daniel, and they begin to conspire against him. Both the commissioners and the satraps, it appears, begin searching for an accusation against Daniel. Presumably, they ask his associates or others in the court or anyone who has had any dealings with Daniel if they could help levy a charge against Daniel. They're looking for witnesses who would be willing to stand before the king and testify. Much like the Pharisees who sought to discredit Christ, these men had no luck in finding anyone who could level a credible accusation against Daniel. Daniel was, in the Bible's term, blameless. You'll hear that term used from time to time. Noah was blameless, for example. Others in Scripture get that title. It's never intended to mean sinless, for that's not possible apart from Christ. But blameless has to speak to how men view men, how the world sees us. Can the world make credible accusation against us? We all have sin, but that doesn't mean we have to show it. That doesn't mean our lives have to be marked by it, that it has to be a well-known part of who we are. And that's not to encourage us to be covert in our sinning. It's speaking to the degree of sin. We all say things we shouldn't say from time to time. We all slip up in moments here and there. We all have thoughts, but does it mark your life? Is it the pattern of your life? Or even worse, are you oblivious to it or without concern for it, in which case it's on display at all times? That's not a blameless person. That's someone who probably has many people, many witnesses, who can stand at any moment and say, yeah, I saw them do this, I heard them do that. They clearly have problems. Daniel was not such a person. Daniel was as upright as he could make himself be, And in that way, no one could bring a credible charge against him. Noah was said to be similar. Daniel's integrity must have been a complete shock to the men who were trying to accuse him because taking bribes in the kind of role that Daniel held would have been the norm in that line of work. A little extra on the side, it's how we make ends meet. Keep in mind, Jews in the day of Jesus held tax collectors in such contempt because a tax collector's income was the extra money they extorted out of people beyond what was required to give to the Caesar. So it was a, it was a racket. 
And everyone knew it, and everyone hated it. These men would have probably have operated under similar circumstances. But not Daniel. There was no evidence of corruption in his pattern of work. And then furthermore, it says, there was no negligence either. Now here again, this is unprecedented, I would think. Particularly for men who have the freedom and the autonomy that these guys would have had in their leadership position. And you can imagine this even in your own day. Men of great power are often found to take advantage of their position. That's not a political statement. I'm just using a common experience as as a highlight of the fact that powerful people will often do rotten things because they can get away with it, right? If you're the boss, you can show up late. You can go home early, take long vacations. I mean, to the extent your business doesn't fail, I guess you can do these things. And these guys were the boss. But Daniel didn't do these things. It says he was diligent in his duties. Again, that must have shocked the guys who were expecting to find this an easier task than it turned out to be. His extraordinary testimony was the result, we're told, of an extraordinary spirit within him, it says in verse 3. The king said he had an extraordinary spirit. That spirit, that is the spirit of of the Lord working in Daniel, sanctified him, leading him into this life of blamelessness, of righteousness. Friends, that's the power of God working in the life of a faithful servant. We don't just possess testimony in words, I hope. We possess a testimony in our actions, for better or worse. And the testimony of our obedience and faithfulness will be far more powerful than anything we might say, even if we have all the right words. So that when we conduct ourselves in a blameless fashion before men, we are making a public statement about the Lord, not just about ourselves. Because you're testifying that his love and approval of you matters more to you than gaining the approval of men. And that in the case of Daniel, the law written on his heart was more important than the ways of men and their laws, their practices, their customs. And that's a testimony of faithfulness that's more valuable than silver and gold, and that's what Daniel was showing by his own life. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's God's will that we should silence ignorant, foolish men by serving God and those he appoints faithfully in submission to human authority. Just as Daniel silenced his critics because they couldn't find anything wrong in his service to his king. On the other hand, and we should say this as well, Scripture does not teach that our faithfulness will necessarily yield converts among those foolish men, nor even prevent them from persecuting us. On the contrary, our faithfulness may very well provoke persecution. Those who witness our faithfulness for Christ may choose to attack us for that very reason. Like the commissioners and the satraps here, our enemies may grow angry at us because of the conviction they feel in witnessing our blameless ways. Christ knew that persecution very well, so will we, most likely. But we persevere in our obedience and in our integrity and in our diligence because we know the Lord will reward us one day, as Peter says. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So pick your line of work. Be employed by whomever you wish, but you're serving the Lord in whatever role you play. And that includes, obviously, working in your home or going to school and whatever place you do what you do. So because these men could not find something against Daniel, they turned to the only solution left to them, and it's a very interesting one. In verse 5 they say, We have to find a way to turn the law of Daniel's God against him. Now, these men are using the oldest trick 
in the book, literally the oldest trick in the book. They are looking for a way to manipulate the word of God against Daniel. You need to understand, they are not expecting to find Daniel in violation of that law. That's not what this is saying. On the contrary, they are depending on Daniel's obedience to that law. They're looking to turn obedience to the law against him in the eyes of the king. And I call this the oldest trick in the book because, in a sense, this was Satan's trick against the woman in the garden. The enemy knew that she was inclined to obey the word of God, to defend the word of God. And yet he also knew she was an innocent and that she was without the support of a husband who could have helped her. And so he manipulated the word of God in the garden so as to deceive her, Paul says. And this woman being innocent and without the support she needed and in the face of a superior enemy, she fell in that deception. So the enemy used the word of God against her in that sense. So these men devise a plan to bring Daniel's obedience to the word of God into conflict with the expectations of a pagan king. Daniel 6.6 Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king... Establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Well, we can see what they're doing here. All the advisors come to the king and they make an appeal to his pride. And specifically, they know the king is going to react in a predictable way to any suggestion that there may be those in the government who do not toe the line under his authority. They suggest we need a test, a test that will ensure everyone is truly loyal to you. Everyone has to worship only you and nothing else for 30 days. And if anyone should disobey, they're going to be cast into a den of lions. And that 30-day period is just long enough to ensure that they can find time to catch anyone who may be disobedient, to expose anyone who may be trying to get around the law. Obviously, it's tailor-made to expose really just one person, particularly, or at least one group of people, those who are inclined toward Yahweh, to the one and only God who is jealous and does not permit worship of any other God. These men knew Daniel, of course. They knew his religious practice, of course. They're confident Daniel is going to be obedient to the law of God because that's his blameless testimony. And so they're all depending on Daniel being Daniel, and this law then being the thing that traps him. So in proposing the rule to the king, they add a little detail. They say, you know, everybody in the government signed up for this. Everybody agrees with this, as if he's the only one who's been left out of the circle. There's really no evidence to suggest they've done any such thing. In fact, Daniel himself is one of these, quote, commissioners, and he certainly didn't agree to it. So obviously they're lying. They're saying this to manipulate the king. And the game they're playing is obvious. They have the king issue this edict that they know Daniel will not obey he's not going to cease worshiping his god then they just lay in wait till daniel does his thing they catch daniel they expose him to the king and essentially they've just made a law tailored to catch one guy at doing one thing they expect to see happen this is an example of the kind of law that a godly person man or woman must disobey while we endeavor to obey rules rulers and Paul certainly tells us that we should do as much in Romans 13, there are limits to our obedience. And this would be an example in which our limits are hit 
Paul says in Romans 12:18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. That parenthetical peace, so far as it depends upon you, is all important. There are times in which the laws of men compel us to disobey the law of God. And if we do that, we, or if we're put in that situation, we can't comply. We simply can't. We have to refuse men and live to serve God. In that case, it is no longer going to be a matter of peace, but it's not because of us. It doesn't depend on us at that point. It is now them that is breaking the peace. The commissioners knew Daniel's heart would be inclined to act this way, and so they intended to take advantage of it. As we consider the impact of their actions, don't forget this law would have also had impact on all the Jews in captivity. For Daniel's not alone in Babylon, obviously, or in Medo-Persia. While we don't hear what they did, I think it's safe to imagine that many chose to go apostate during these 30 days. It's only 30 days, right? In fact, we don't hear of anyone else being thrown into the lion's den, not in this story anyway. It may have been that these men only sought to persecute Daniel and they ignored anyone else's behavior during those 30 days. They gave no concern to it because they weren't really out to solve any bigger problem anyway. They never had a sincere interest in what the whole group was doing, only what one person was doing. If I'm right, then it would mean that any other Jew who chose to remain faithful to God in those 30 days would have also been spared in the end. Not because God had to intervene supernaturally, but because of their obscurity in the process. But it is interesting to consider those who decided to go apostate would have gone against God without reason to worry. And those who would have held the line within the captives of Israel, they were rewarded as well. They didn't go to the lion's den because they were never the true target. This is how the Lord often uses trial to purify the true heart and expose the false one as well. And as this story reveals, the Lord continues to bless those who are faithful That's the fundamental lesson of this chapter. But faithfulness, even in the times of trial, has its own rewards. So, commissioners tell the king, you've got to sign this law. Everybody agrees. And they also remind him, once you sign this law, it can't be changed. Because that's the practice, the custom of the Medes and Persians. They're referring to a unique aspect of Medo-Persian law. In their law, in the Medo-Persian law, the king was all-powerful in the kingdom. There was no Senate, there was no Parliament to counter his judgment. So in that sense, the king had power similar to the king of Babylon. But there was one key difference. The Medes and the Persians required that a sitting king had to honor all prior royal edicts, even their own, without challenge. So that once a law was passed by any king, it could not be changed or ignored by any king, including the one who passed it. That was a constraint an intentional constraint on the power of the king. The thought was it gave a king good reason to think carefully before making any edicts because they were going to be bound by it too. They couldn't change their mind. And it was a bit of a check and balance on the power of the king. That one difference between the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire accounts for the difference in the metals of the statue. Remember, we noted that the gold of the Babylon part of the statue gave way to the silver of the Medo-Persian section of the statue. And silver is a lower value than gold. And that represented a less glorious or less majestic kind of rule in that next kingdom. The lower value of the metal is symbolic of this limit on the king's power that we're talking about now in the Medo-Persian Empire. Babylonian kings, they had no such restriction. They could say left today and right tomorrow and left the third day and it didn't matter. They could do anything they wanted. Medo-Persian kings had a lot of power, but they couldn't change past edicts. 
Simple check on power, but that means a less majestic form of authority. So the commissioner's tricks work here, and the king signs the document, and that seals Daniel's fate. We can't tell from what we know so far if the king expected Daniel to be caught up in this or not, or if he never gave it a lot of thought. It it seems as though he didn't give the law a lot of forethought, which would be ironic considering this rule we just talked about. He, He took bad counsel, it seems, and he acted too quickly. And now he's stuck because he signed a law. And as a result, he needlessly endangers the life of his most valued Advisor, Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for thirty days, is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which your king establishes may be changed. So first, we hear Daniel has learned of the decree. Of course, he would have. He's a commissioner. The word would have gone out through the government. He must have suspected why it had been passed, don't you think? That he could see through the whole thing, that he knew it must have been directed at him particularly, uh, or at the Jewish people, at the very least. He's suffered a lot of attacks in his prior years. He's had the jealousies of others when he's had the role. That started even way back when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he became the administrator of Babylon, and that created all kinds of, uh, of jealousies right from the start. So this is nothing new in that respect. But on the other hand, this threat represents real jeopardy for Daniel, not something he's seen so far. And the reason, of course, is that the king has issued an injunction. This is a law. It can't be ignored. Not even the king can go against his own word. And he's specified a penalty that no man, under normal circumstances, could survive. So it is a death penalty that is assured for Daniel. Now, given that, you might think Daniel would start to operate at least a little differently under the circumstances. But in verse 10... We're told Daniel just keeps to the normal routine. The alarm goes off. He gets coffee, puts on his jogging shoes, goes out for a quick run, comes back, prays, goes out, lunch, comes back, prays. You know, whatever his routine is, it says he does exactly what he does and has been doing previously. Three times a day, he goes to this room up on the roof where it's cooler in the desert climate. It's cooler when you get up where the breezes are. And it's semi-private. And he prays, giving thanks to the Lord, facing Jerusalem. His posture of facing the city was... So a practice that Solomon instituted for the people of Israel as a way of looking expectantly for the coming of Messiah one day. It was an attitude of expectation. Obviously, Daniel has a routine here that's somewhat private. It's not like he's going to the street corners. But it's also clear from the text that everyone knows Daniel does this, that he's done it for so long and he's done it so regularly that it's a part of who he is. In fact, it's interesting, as you read through the passage I just read, it appears that the first time the king gave any thought 
to the way this law would impact Daniel was when they told him that Daniel continues to do what he keeps doing. Notice in verse 13 it says, but he keeps making his petitions three times a day. It sounds very much as though they're saying, yeah, Daniel hasn't stopped doing that thing we all know that he does. And then it says, as soon as he heard the statement, the king was distressed. It strikes me that that might have been the first moment that the king thought, oh my goodness, this law is going to impact Daniel like I never realized. Daniel's now in trouble. And he didn't like that idea, obviously. We'll come back to that in a minute. But as I said earlier, knowing that Daniel's routine is so public and understand, you, you might think at this point Daniel would change his practice a little bit, right? I mean, it's going to get him killed. He can still pray, but maybe he doesn't do it three times. Maybe he just does it once. Maybe he does it quietly somewhere else. I mean, can't you imagine a pattern just being different but still praying to the right God? Daniel could go on doing this in some other way. But he shows great confidence in his convictions by simply sticking to the normal pattern. You know, it's one thing for Daniel to hold the line in this way in the face of persecution. That's admirable, of course. And some of us would probably struggle to follow that example. We might even see persecution as a good reason to shrink back and and just become more secretive. But on the other hand, following this routine is a challenge all of its own. Wouldn't you agree? Even before the persecution shows up, many people will gain greater resolve in the face of trial. That's not uncommon, actually. People will, will get stronger under a threat. Mothers putting ourselves in harm's way to save the children, husbands protecting their wives from an intruder. You know, we grow braver and we show more resolve often when someone threatens us. But it's for that very reason that I'm actually more impressed with the fact that Daniel followed his routine before God even put this persecution trial in front of him. He prays and praises the Lord every day, three times a day, without fail, to the point where everybody knows he does it. And I doubt he was talking about it. You know, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that said, yep, just got back from my third prayer today. Right? It's probably not a bragging thing. He's just so consistent, everyone has noticed it by now. I think the hardest test of faithfulness is to keep your disciplines of faith going when times are easy. And there is nothing forcing your hand to do it. That's actually the harder one of the two, I would think. It's easy to find time to pray when you're desperate for a rescue. It's hard to pray when you don't feel you need much of God's grace under the circumstances. It's easy to give thanks in times of ease. It's really hard to rise three times a day as Daniel is continuing to do and thank and praise the Lord when he knows that doing so puts him at risk of dying. So Daniel prayed three times a day in times of ease. He gave thanks to the Lord three times a day in times of great trial and testing. And in both cases, he's a great example of what a mature, faithful follower of God does. You don't let your relationship with the Lord turn on your life circumstances. You don't let your life circumstances dictate the pattern of praise and prayer in your life. How closely do any of us actually equal that? If you find your disciplines of faith moving back and forth with the circumstances of your life, look at that issue itself as an opportunity to grow in your faith, to move ahead so that your life of devotion to the Lord is not being pushed around by circumstances, but it has a steadiness of its own. That's real spiritual maturity. It's been said that those who have no regular habit of prayer or study or praise rarely do much praying, studying, or praising. In other words, those practices develop out of habit and the formation of habits must be by intent, by choice, because they don't form on their own. And if you do not make them a habit in times of ease, then you will not turn to them with much conviction in times of distress. Then in verse 11, we see the conspiracy coming to conclusion. His adversaries, it says, came by agreement to Daniel's house at one of his appointed prayer times. Now, by agreement means, of course, in a conspiracy. 
because they want multiple witnesses to make their accusations stick. You know, they need the testimony of two or three, not just of one. They planned the time of their visit to coincide with Daniel's usual time of prayer because they knew where he would be and they knew when to find him. After they observe Daniel in violation of the order, they quickly return to the king. They make their accusations. First, they remind the king of the edict and the rule concerning the edict. And then the king agrees yet again. Yes, that's true. That's what I said. It can't be changed. Then they lower the boom. And they reveal, as I mentioned earlier, that they had seen Daniel. Obviously, these men realize Darius has a sweet spot in his heart for Daniel, that he respects Daniel. I mean, they'd heard that Daniel was getting ready to be elevated as the chief honcho over everybody. So they understand the king is going to be distressed. He's not going to be happy with this outcome. And that's why they set him up with the reminder that this is a law that can't change. And as you see, they come back around and remind him a second time after they see him dithering for a whole day uh, to remind him you can't get out from under this. You've got to go forward with the rule. This is different in in a major way from the corresponding story in Archaism in chapter 3. So remember, this chapter corresponds to chapter 3 where we saw Daniel's three friends. In the furnace. In that chapter, remember what happened when Nebuchadnezzar found out that the three friends were not comporting with his rules. He became enraged, it says, at Daniel's friends, right? We we made the comparison that his anger burned hot, so he said, Turn up the furnace seven times, right? It was a, a reflection of his anger. But now you see a different Gentile king doing the opposite, working very hard to save Daniel. But having been trapped by his own edict, and his kingdom's rules concerning edicts, the king can do nothing to help Daniel. So the juxtaposition between 3 and 6 is this. Not even the king of the most powerful nation on earth can save Daniel, despite wanting to. The point in this difference is to emphasize that God doesn't just rescue the remnant of Israel from kings who are set against them. God remains Israel's deliverer even when those Gentile kings are favorable to Israel. The Lord has constructed this situation so that Daniel's rescue has to depend on the Lord and the Lord alone. Darius may be king, but even he can't solve this problem. So all that remains is for the sentence to be carried out. Verse 16. Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now we have the infamous moment which has inspired countless young coloring book artists, Daniel in the lion's den. And Daniel is pushed, we're told, into the den. And as he is put in the den, the king pronounces a prophetic blessing over him right before they seal it up. He says that the Lord that Daniel served continuously will deliver him. In other words, the king is saying this. He's saying, you serve me well, Daniel, 
but I couldn't save you, so the God you served without fail will have to save you instead. And as I said, that's exactly what the Lord wanted. He wanted it to be, everyone to be clear, He is Israel's deliverer, so that even though Gentile nations rule over Israel in the age of the Gentiles, those nations do not hold the secret to Israel's safety and security. The Lord alone is Israel's strength. The king's words sound a little bit like the way I think some Christians think under trying circumstances. That is to say, we would pray something like, God, I, I couldn't solve this problem myself, and my family and my, and my friends couldn't solve it, and my lawyer or my banker or my doctor couldn't solve it, so I guess you're going to have to solve it. Why do we try everything else before we seek the Lord, right? In Daniel's case, the Lord wanted everyone else out of the way so that he could show himself to be uh, Daniel's deliverer. But Daniel, remember, was already praying three times a day. I suspect he was praying for deliverance even before he was taken in before the king and pr- the sentence was pronounced. Uh, but if you're not in the habit of praying and praising regularly, perhaps the Lord will use trial to teach you the importance of doing that, as he does often. Nevertheless, though, there's no guarantee. And I think that's another component or another uh, corollary to understanding how we work with the Lord under these circumstances. There's no guarantee the Lord is going to rescue us every time we come to him for help, every time we pray. That is to say, you cannot take what he did for Daniel and make it a prescription for that for everyone's life. He may solve your problem, whatever that is, or he may let it overcome you. Regardless of how it turns out in the end, the question is, did we respond in faith and obedience? Because the spiritual benefits of depending on the Lord are far greater than the physical toll taken by our trials. And they last into eternity. So at that moment, the king puts Daniel to den. And just to give you a visual, when we think of den here, we're not talking about a cave into the side of a wall so much. More likely, we're talking about a pit. It's evident here, and what will come a little later in the story, it's evident that they fall in or that they have to climb down in. It's downward motion. And if you're thinking then of a pit of some substantial size, it's likely that we're talking about a cistern. If you've ever been to the Middle East or been to Israel, you'll see sometimes on tours cisterns, big open caverns, big rooms, sometimes as large as a, a large hall or theater underground that have sometimes very small openings somewhere. These are often used in the Middle East to store rainwater. And as a cistern, it can hold large amounts of water for long periods of time. This is obviously a dry cistern, and there wouldn't be lions in it. And he was probably pushed into a hole. He didn't necessarily fall very far. He may have fallen down a steep incline that led down into the bottom of the pit, whatever the situation. But it was probably a large space in which lions could move around and and be held in. If it were too small, you couldn't have lions surviving in there very well. And once you're in there and they close it up, there's no way out. So Daniel is dropped in and the uh, entrance is covered over with a stone. No one's going in, no one's going out. That ceiling of a, of a tomb reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Of his ceiling of a tomb, of a rock tomb. And it's not a coincidence because Daniel in this scene actually serves as a picture of Christ. Like Daniel, Jesus was given over to death because of his obedience to the word of God. And like Daniel, Jesus was subjected to the penalty of by a ruler, in Jesus' case it was Pilate, who was sympathetic but felt he had no choice but to go forward with the decision. And like Daniel, only Jesus' God could rescue him from this sentence. And after a time in the ground, he was vindicated by his God and Father. And all of those pictures are intentional. In Daniel's case, certainly no one expected to see him again. No one's going to survive normally being left overnight in a place like this. In fact, there probably would have been no trace of a person in the morning. 
you would have expected to open it up and just found nothing inside except a bunch of sleeping lions. During that night, the king goes back. He's fasting. He wants no entertainment before him. He's probably not in the mood for merriment, obviously. He's troubled by what's happened and he can't sleep. It's interesting to wonder what the king is doing as he fasts. Uh, It's obvious he's worried about Daniel, but it also seems like he holds out some kind of hope. His fasting would seem to suggest a petitioning before God or gods. It could just be nerves. But when morning comes, he goes to the den with some anticipation here. You know, again, you get the sense that he's expecting to find Daniel. He even calls out for him when he opens up the cave. He seems to believe that Daniel's God has the potential to do something miraculous for Daniel. That thought might be expected of a pagan. I mean, they look to many different gods for many different things. So perhaps that's the basis of his expectation. But I also wonder if it's just a little bit of the history of Daniel and of Daniel's God. He may have heard the stories of what happened before him in Babylon and of what Daniel's God did for those three friends. The next morning, whatever the case, the next morning, he rushes to see if Daniel survived. The sentence of death in the lion's den must not have been specified with a length of time because the king is already ready to release Daniel should he find him alive. So the fact that he had to be in the lion's den didn't necessarily require some like the time, it seems. And the king returns to open the pit right at dawn. That, again, also foreshadows Jesus in that the women first come to Jesus' tomb early on the first day of the week to find it open. And like in Jesus' case, the king finds only the living in the pit, not the dead. He calls out to Daniel through the mouth of the opening. His question is very specific. He says, has your God delivered you? The king's already prepared to credit the God of Israel if he finds Daniel alive. Again, this is the message of the chapter. This whole chapter is talking to this very point. The Lord is reminding us each time a king opens his mouth that Daniel is in God's hands and even the lions submit to God's will and Israel is subject to God's authority. Daniel responds with the greeting, a greeting of honor and respect. Remember, Daniel's in his 80s. So, probably a bit feeble. Obviously, no match for a lion. You might imagine him sort of walking up with a cane. I'm here. I'm here. Don't close it. I'm okay. And so, as he emerges unscathed, it's clearly a miracle. Daniel says, The Lord sent his angel to guard the lion's mouths. And the mention of God's angel would suggest very strongly that he's talking again about the angel of the Lord. Uh, The same one who came to Daniel's friends in chapter 3, that would be another reason to consider that it's also the angel of the Lord because of the parallelism. And so it would seem sensible to conclude this is the second person of the Godhead again. The angel of the Lord is always Christ pre-incarnate. So literally, Jesus appears in this tomb with Daniel to preserve him. Daniel says, the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. And that, that would tell us, his words make clear here, that the lions were still inclined to eat Daniel. This is not a case of lazy or disinterested lions. They were supernaturally held back from pursuing their natural course. They desperately wanted to eat Daniel all night, and they could not do it. They just gave him a big hug. No. When Jesus went to the grave, it was the enemy himself who pursued Jesus through Judas and through stirring up the, the Jewish crowds and the like. But in the end, the enemy wasn't able to defeat Jesus. The Bible calls the enemy a prowling lion looking to devour. And the Lord shut the enemy's mouth in his day, just as he did in Daniel's day. Daniel adds that his vindication was proof from God that Daniel was innocent in this matter before the Lord and before the king. He's speaking about the larger claims here. So if you're wondering how can he be innocent when he did, in fact, violate the law, there's no doubt about that. 
You have to look at the purpose that was given for why the law should be passed. The larger concern here of the advisors, the case they made to the king. And what was that case? They made the case that this was a test for loyalty. Are they loyal to the king or do they have mixed loyalties? Daniel certainly violated the king's law. He prayed to a god other than the king. But Daniel did not violate the spirit of why the law was passed. That is, Daniel was innocent of being against the king, of having loyalties outside of the king, of being disloyal. In fact, he was the king's most loyal subject. The king's edict was simply poorly conceived and executed rashly, which then led to Daniel's entrapment. So the Lord vindicated Daniel by saving him in the den. Interestingly, the edict said that this law remained in effect for 30 days, right? We're presumably very early in that 30 days. I doubt the men would have waited a whole long time to bring an accusation. And they certainly didn't wait or delay in in executing justice in these days. And yet, we must assume, Daniel goes right out of that den, goes right back to his upper room, and immediately pray thanks as he came back to his house, right? And then pick up in his routine thereafter. Now, we know the law can't be changed. It must stay in effect. So how did Daniel avoid another round of persecution under that very same law for the rest of that month? Well, the answer is his enemies were no longer around to accuse him. Because ironically, the king's edict did in fact expose those who were disloyal to him. It just ended up being a different group of people. Look at verse 24. The king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So those who had conspired against Daniel were now judged guilty of the very crime that they accused Daniel of. They weren't guilty of the technical details of the law, that is, of praying to another god, but they were guilty of the spirit of the law, of being disloyal, and their disloyalty was evidenced in their conspiring against one of the king's loyal advisors. That would be disloyal to the king. Therefore, the king cast all of them and their families into the den. And this time, the lions' mouths were allowed to remain open. In fact, you might wonder if the lions were a little more hungry, having just stared at Daniel all night without being able to pounce. While we might question the decision to destroy whole families here, keep in mind that was a common practice in this day, the one who led in a home often bring consequences to everyone in the home. And frankly, that's still true today, and and obviously in a different way. But today, if a father is poor with money, well, the family may suffer. If a wife has an affair, well, the family may suffer. If a child rebels, the family will suffer. Right? These, are, these are not necessarily judgments from God directly, so much as they may just be the natural consequences of sin. But the general concept is still evident even in our everyday life today, that you cannot take the sin of one and separate the consequences purely from everyone else around that person in life. It's impossible. Moving to the end of the chapter, Daniel 6.25. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Darius wrote an edict for all people of the earth to hear, which again makes sense given that he is the co-ruler or ruler of the most powerful nation on earth. As we read his recounting of the story and his praise for Daniel's God, there are two things being reinforced here as we end. First, 
The key lesson of the chapter keeps coming back, and it's emerged here again. God will rule over Gentile nations that are designated to rule over Israel. So that as Israel exists under Gentile authority during the age of Gentiles, this is according to God's purpose and plans. Secondly, Gentile kingdoms will rise and they will fall as God appoints. But his dominion goes on forever. He is still on the throne and Israel's plight is not cause for them to doubt God's power or authority. And here we see yet another chapter where God uses a Gentile king to remind Israel of both of those facts. We are not Israel, obviously. We are not the nation that God has called out in Scripture for these things. But the principles are certainly still true for us. That even as our world rocks and reels from one moment to the next, politics change, nations change around us, etc., the God who is in charge of all these things is just steadily moving through a plan that he has ordained. Nothing rocks his throne. There's a day coming when all of this gets set aside for a new kingdom that will not be set aside again. In the meantime, we can be patient. We can understand these things are happening according to God's purpose. And then to end the chapter, Darius praises uh, Yahweh. And his praise may lead us to ask the same question here that we would have asked of Nebuchadnezzar in his testimony after he was humbled a couple chapters ago. And that question is, does this tell us that Darius became a convert? Was he saved by faith in the, in the Lord and the God of Israel? He uses some striking language. He says Yahweh is the living God and that his... Uh, He's a God that endures forever and that his kingdom endures forever. He also calls him the God of Daniel. Once again, the answer, though, is we we really don't know. I mean, this isn't conclusive. It makes more sense to me, actually, to conclude that the Lord did not persuade this king to know him because that would only emphasize all the more that the God of Israel can use even Israel's enemies to save Israel, to, to control what happens to Israel. It doesn't require, in other words, that God save somebody before that person can be useful in his hands to help the people of God. It's all supposition in any case. The chapter ends reminding us that Daniel forevermore enjoyed success under the kings of Persia. This is really a footnote to his life or almost the concluding statement of his life. Daniel 7 and 8, which we do next, obviously, those two chapters occur in time, chronologically, before the events we just studied in chapter 6. But the events of chapter 9, which those happen in the same year as the events of Daniel and the lion's den. And then chapters 10 through 12 come about two years after this, at the very end of Daniel's life. So Daniel would have died, we think, somewhere soon after that, while still in Babylon. He never goes back to Jerusalem, as far as we can tell. But he remained faithful during all his time in exile. All right, well, we'll end there. We'll come back next week into Daniel chapter 7. Now, remember when I did Daniel chapter 2, which is the one in the chiasm that corresponds to 7, we did the statue. Daniel 7 comes back around to the same topic, age of the Gentiles. Now, with beasts, since so much of it it parallels 2, because, again, we're looking at the same topic, we'll move through a, a good part of that chapter with brevity because of what we've already learned. But then there's new information toward the back half of that chapter expanding on the fourth kingdom. If you have not been here for chapter 2, then this is my reminder to you. Go back and listen and look at the notes and the slides that are online so that you're prepared to go with the faster pace of Daniel 7 next week. Let's go to prayer. Father, we thank you for Daniel's example. For a man who is in his daily routine, whether in times of crisis or in times of ease. A man who is not shaken by the edicts of kings. By a man who is willing to trade his life, if that is necessary to remain faithful. Father, we aspire to these things. We seek to be like Daniel in these things. 
we need as much courage and conviction as the Spirit can give us so that we may do these things. And we ask, Lord, that our study would be uh, prompted, uh, would, would prompt in us a desire for obedience and would uh, give over to the Spirit working in us to produce that outcome, Father. Let your word have its effect in our hearts. And bring us back next week as we continue. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.